Amen. Yes, indeed, and welcome. It's good to be back up with this altitude. A little nervous about the nosebleed potentiality, but I think we're going to be okay. I want to issue a good morning to those of you on the second floor, the first floor, and those of you that are watching remotely, and of course, to all of you here in this space. My name, as Matt has said, is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor down here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church, and that sounded painful, <laughs> or at least expensive, or both. If it was expensive, it better have been painful. This morning, I want to talk about love, and I want to talk about marriage. It's really an interesting thing. Only for about the last century and a half or so, in the Western world at least, have people been getting married because of love and romance. Now, that might shock you. You might think, what? Why else would your person possibly get married? Well, for millennia, People really only got married in terms of financial security and for family establishment to bring together assets and wealth and worth and prestige and esteem. Maybe you were uniting a clan. Maybe you were uniting a tribe, perhaps even a city-state. Sometimes even empires were strengthened by the bond of marriage. So that was what marriage was for all of antiquity. And then very, very recently in our culture and context, there's been this sort of pendulum swing in the other direction where marriage is all about just love and romance. As it turns out, both models are actually wrong. They are actually incorrect. And one of my old professors in seminary, a guy named Dr. Craig Barnes, has written a book called Hustling God. And in this book, he puts it this way. Love is a blessing in our lives only when we receive it as a surprising gift and never when we make it the fulfillment of our dreams. In our day and age, people have decided that love is the ultimate answer, at least romantic love, at least relational love, at least a union kind of love. That is the thing that's going to fulfill me. And so we put all of our eggs, if you will, in that proverbial basket. But Barnes is right. He says, no, love is a blessing in our lives only when we receive it as a surprising gift. In other words, we're not entitled to it. We don't deserve it. And we never try to make love the fulfillment of our dreams. Another theologian with a lot less credibility, but a lot more notoriety by the name of Johnny Lee in 1980, put it this way. I was looking for love in all the wrong places. Yea, verily, looking for love in too many faces, searching their eyes, looking for traces of what I'm Dreaming of. Those of you who are old enough to know this, you just unbuttoned your shirt one button. I know. Stay with me. Come on now. The millennials are watching. Hoping to find a friend and a lover, I'll bless the day I discover another heart looking for love. This morning, we want to talk about a person who was desperately looking for love. In fact, Several people who were desperately looking for love. We have been in the book of Genesis for nine weeks now, talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This sovereign creator of the cosmos who makes the sun stand still for a day is also the God who makes a single iron axe head float on the water. He is a great, sovereign, powerful God, and he is a particular and precise God. And he identifies and aligns himself and associates himself with a very particular people, and these people are not particularly awesome. Genesis chapter 4 through 11, we have the explosion of human violence all over the world. And so finally, by the time we have chapter 6, there's a flood. Chapter 11, there's a tower being created. We will find our way to the gateway of heaven. God says, no, I'm going to redeem the world 
through, if you will, the first family. And he calls Abram out of Ur the Chaldeans. He's a 75-year-old moon worshiper with a barren wife. He says, I'm going to give you land and offspring and blessing. It's going to come through your family. All sorts of trials, all sorts of toils and travails occur. But finally, Isaac and Sarah are able to conceive and they have a son named Isaac. At the age of 40, Isaac is married. He waits 20 years being married to Rebecca, and they finally have twins. And those twins, well, they were a pair. The younger is a deceiver and a schemer, and he tricks his brother not once but twice for his birthright and his blessing until the older brother says, I'm going to kill you, because all older brothers do that, I have discovered. Being the younger brother, I have discovered that all older brothers, they just come right out of the wrapper making those kinds of threats. Jacob hears about it, and his mother hears about it, and he sends him away. You have to go to my kin, she says. And so he makes the 500-mile journey from Beersheba in the south of Israel all the way up into Mesopotamia. About 50 miles into his journey, he has an ecstatic experience where he sees heaven opened and God descend on this massive escalator that is freighted with angels and it's coming to right where he is. And the, the presence of the Lord never says you must climb. In fact, it says, you stay put, I've come to you. And Jacob has this amazing experience and he worships and he sets up his own little mini tower of Babylon, the gateway to heaven. This is where God has one foot on earth and one foot in heaven and I have been there. And wherever I go, this God said, that will be with me. And so Jacob takes off. He continues to go some 450 miles further to the north and to the east, which brings us to Genesis chapter 29. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn there with me. We're going to walk through Genesis chapter 29 rather rapidly. There's a lot going on here. I just want to highlight and pinpoint some things and draw your attention to them. Genesis 29, Moses is sitting in the dirt as the people of Israel have come up out of Egypt, and he's trying to explain to them who this God is, you know, this God that they can see in pillar of fire and pillar of smoke. What is he like? He's not like the gods of the Egyptian pantheon. This God's different. He identifies himself with people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and you. Listen to what he says in chapter 29. Then Jacob went on his journey. Uh, now, then Jacob Picked up his feet is the actual Hebraic expression. It's like we would say in East Texas, he was picking them up and putting them down, man. Off he goes. He was hoofing it. He's left Bethel and he's got 450 miles further to go to get all the way up to Haran, which is in Mesopotamia, which means parched. It's a dry, desert, barren region. He went on his journey and he came to the land of the people of the East. Incidentally, a slight little side message here. In the Bible, the metaphor, the image of going east is never good. Going east is never good, which is why we should pretty much just saw Louisiana right off. <laughs> it's not an inspired comment. I just wanted to go ahead and say that out loud. No. Going east is never a good idea. God had just told him, I promise I will give you the land that you are currently laying on. It's yours. And Jacob says, Roger, Wilco, and out. And he marches 450 miles to the northeast. Verse 2, as he looked, he saw a well in the field. Oh, that's amazing. That should not be. Now, when you hear the words well, you might be thinking of like a sound of music kind of well. Nicely bricked up. It's got a little roof. There's a pulley and a rope. And there's some blonde people with braids. And they're throwing coins in there, singing in harmony. That's not a well. 
That's a Disney creation. No, a well is this deep gash in the rock where they have beaten it with hammers and stones to open up to see if perhaps they could dig deep enough to find water. And here they did. And Jacob's thinking, finally, I've made it all this way, 450 miles. I didn't even bring anything to eat. And I've gotten here and I'm seeing the first signs of life. I see a well. God must be making good on his promise. He's giving provision. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone of the well's mouth was large. The way Moses writes this, that is in the emphatic position. He wants you to understand this is a very significant well and the stone that covers it so that pollutants wouldn't fall in, so that the livestock wouldn't fall in, so that the people wouldn't fall in. The stone that covers it is very, very large. Three separate flocks laying around there. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the mouth of the well. They would all work together once all the flocks came. So not, not just three, not just these three shepherds gathered, the whole rest of the community would bring all of their flocks and then they would all work together to move this big stone. The shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and, the water, and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, this effusive fellow, where do you come from? They said, we come from Haran. They're not real sure about this guy who just walked out of nowhere wearing some foreign clothes. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, yeah. <laughs> and so you kind of get the idea that, Nathan, or that, it, uh, that Jacob starts to sort of like swirl his hands like, Okay, and how's he doing? Is it well with him, they say in verse six. It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. In other words, leave us alone. We've got a lot of busy nothing to do. We're just sitting here, but Laban's daughter is coming. Behold, why don't you just talk to her for a minute? He said, oh, wait, there's a woman coming? And then suddenly Jacob swells up. He gets all bowed up. 3,800 years later, have men changed? No, no, no. He says in verse 7, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. He's going to school these dudes that they shouldn't be where they are. They, listen, it's the middle of the day. This is not the time for you to water the sheep. You should be out in the fields letting the sheep graze. You water the sheep in the evening. And so he's going to bark three commands as he sees this woman approaching. I'll show these losers, these lazy fellows who's boss. And so he barks three commands at them. Water the sheep. Go, pasture them. And you get the sense that they sort of lean on their staff. They reach in their pack. They tear off a piece of camel jerky. And they smack and they go, no, no, no. Verse 8, they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. These lazy guys. These guys remind me, many, many years ago, I was working a trade show at the convention center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I had my little kiosk set up and I needed some electrical help. And so I went and tried to find the union electricians. And I said, hey, you guys, I need some help real quick. Can y'all just come with me? Come on, hey, come on, come on. And you might not know this. I'm slightly high strung and I talk a little rapid. I was like, hey, guys, come on, come on, come on. And I look back and they're all just looking at me like they want to bury a wrench in my face. <laughs> I thought, okay, I'll just wait. I'll, I'll be over there. I'll, I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll just be waiting. That's kind of how these shepherds are. They're not super interested in helping out or doing much of anything. They're just lazy losers. Verse 9, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Well, 
Only time this word is used in your Bible, a shepherdess. But you have to think that this brings to mind some really good images for Moses. Remember, 400 years after the experience he's writing about, Moses comes on the scene. You remember? Moses is in Egypt, and he kills a dude, and he flees, and he makes it to the land of Midian, and he meets a guy named Jethro. No, not that Jethro. He's the priest of Midian, and Jethro has seven daughters, and they're all shepherdesses. And Moses marries one of them. He's like, oh yeah, there's nothing like a shepherdess to get your blood flowing. And this is who Jacob, you Israelites, your forefather, this is what he sees. He sees just what I saw. He sees a shepherdess. You know what I'm talking about right now. That's right. (laughs) Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Okay, did did I mention this is a really big stone that it takes all the shepherds to work together to move? Jacob suddenly just pops a Red Bull, goes over, grabs the stone, kisses his biceps, and moves the stone out of the way. And then he he kicks all the other flocks out of the way, and he waters uh, Rachel's sheep. Oh, he's kind of showing out here. He rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. What? Weirdest first date ever. (laughs) Now, we are supposed to be connecting the dots here. And if you're not, let me help. Way back in chapter 24, Abraham sought God and said, it is time for my son Isaac to take a wife. And so he prayed and he prayed and he comes and he gets his first servant, Eliezer, and says, I want you to pray and I want you to swear you'll not get a wife from the Canaanites. You've got to go to that little pocket of monotheism in Mesopotamia and get someone from my own kin. Eliezer does. And he gathers all the camels, all the donkeys, all the gifts, all the goods. And he makes the journey from Canaan all the way to Mesopotamia. And there's this wonderful encounter where he waits and he prays and he watches and he waits and he prays and he watches. And Rebecca, who was drop dead gorgeous, comes out and he says, you're the one because you did exactly what I prayed for. And then he (laughs) grabs a big old nose ring and jams it through her nostril and says, come with me. At which point you're like, "Ah, okay. None of that kind of thing happens here at all. Jacob has come all by himself with absolutely nothing. He's just had an amazing experience with God. But that was 450 miles ago. There's no sense whatsoever that Jacob is now remembering, that he's now seeking God. He falls in love with this woman before he's even met her. He falls in love with her image, not with her. He weeps on her. He kisses her. Now, that's a customary, typical Near Eastern greeting. That's fine. But he's wailing. What's the text telling us? He's desperate. He's an empty vessel. He's a vacuum. He's completely broken. All the wreckage behind him, all the anxiety and all the animosity, all the uncertainty in front of him, and he sees someone that is kin, and he just loses it. Just this desperation of, this is it. God is faithful. This is the, whoever her, what's her name again? He doesn't care. He's just thinking, this is the one. She is the one that will fulfill me fully, utterly. Doesn't even introduce himself just flops on her neck. The text is he puts his face in her neck and just kisses, 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 and then starts sobbing. It's like, totally, like, not even get a corsage first. No, you're just going to, like, slobber on me first. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman. Oh, now you tell me. You, you, you. Now you tell me. 
and that he was Rebekah's son. And she, Rachel, ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him. <laughs> this is a clever, cute little point here. Remember, at this point, Jacob's about 75. All right, so Laban is older than Jacob's mother, Rebecca. He was the older brother. So Laban's got to be pushing like a hundred or so, right? He's up there, but he hears that somebody from Canaan has come, and he picks him up and he puts him down, and he runs out to meet Jacob. Oh, my kin is here. Why? He remembers 95 years earlier, that's right, 95 years earlier, the servant of Abraham from Canaan came and he brought all these camels and all these donkeys and all this livestock and good and gold and silver, all this stuff. And so Laban runs out. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and he embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And the whole while is going, oh, Jacob, it's so good to meet you. Where's the camels? Oh, Jacob, it's so nice to meet you. Where's the donkeys? Oh, Jacob, did you at least bring a sandwich? Ah, uh, Jacob, did you have any gum? Jacob, where's the stuff? Jacob's got nothing. He's totally bereft. And so he brings him into his house and gives him a Pop-Tart. There you go. Knock yourself out. He kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. Now that's in there for a reason. Not just, hey, you just hugged me and brought me into your house. No, Laban knew that. Jacob tells Laban his whole backstory. I am your sister's son. My father, Isaac, my grandfather, Abraham, this is what happened. God came to your sister, Rebecca, this Aramean, this one who's outside, originally the, the covenant family, and he told my mother, your sister, that I would be the one that would receive the blessing and the birthright. And I didn't really trust it because, I mean, I'm the second born, and so I, by hook and by crook, I got it. I got the blessing, and I got the birthright. And now your nephew, Esau, he's trying to kill me, and so I ran here. 500 miles. Watch what Laban says. Laban said to him, verse 14, surely you are my bone and my flesh. Awkward quoting of the Garden of Eden where Adam looks at Eve for the first time. Surely you're my flesh and bone. Why? This is foreboding. Laban's going, oh, we're family. You're a swindler and a cheat and a heel grabber, are you? Yeah, we're going to get along just fine, you and me. Dun, dun, dun. Here we go. Verse 14, he said, surely you are my, my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with Laban a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now that is a breach. Laban is in the position of power. He is the one that owns all the resources, all the land, all of the assets. He should make a proposal. He knows what wages generally are. Jacob doesn't. He's a child of privilege. He grew up being the landowner under his father's house. He has no idea what people make. Laban knows this. And so Laban's going to scheme him already. This heel grabber, Jacob, has no idea he's about to get schemed and heel grabbed. Now, verse 16, Moses gives us a little quick interlude. Laban's just said, hey, you shouldn't just work here for free because, hmm, turns out you do good business. Just like you said, there's a promise on you. There's a blessing on you. Indeed, it is profitable to keep you around. What shall I pay you? And then Moses pauses and says, now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Well, we like Rachel. She was a shepherdess. Did I mention that? Woo, verse 17, Leah's eyes were weak. Ugh, that's never, ever what you want to put on your business card. Like when you call the modeling agency and you go, yeah, well, what do you do? I'm, I have weak eyes. They're going to go, thank you. No, thank you. We have a mail room. It's a weird Hebrew expression. Nobody knows exactly how to translate. It doesn't mean that she was necessarily cross-eyed. She might have been. 
It means literally she had no sparkle, no fire in her eyes, probably because she looked like a mud fence, okay? That's just, she was weak in the eyes, like, ooh, that's tough right there, ooh. But, this is how we know what it means because of the comparison, but Rachel, whose name means little you lamb, a little lamb, Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, Moses is very careful to tell us this. Just like Sarah had been said was one a beautiful woman, so much that Pharaoh and Abimelech wanted to take her into their home. Just like Rebekah was so beautiful that the Philistines wanted to take her into their harem. And also, apparently, this Rachel, she's beautiful in form. That means her figure, which is not the same aesthetic that we value in the 21st century. It means she was, as we would say in Texas, She's country thick, all right, all right. She's country thick. She was hefty. I like that, all right. And in appearance, that is a facial, right? So she's beautiful and she's hefty. You got to love this, Rachel. She's a shepherdess, all right. Jacob loved Rachel. Ahava. Just instantly, he just gives himself. He's all in. This is the one that will fill me. This is the one that will fulfill me. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your youngest daughter, Rachel. You ninny. Seven years? Jacob has no idea. He's about to be schemed and heel grabbed. Laban does. The typical bride price of that day was somewhere between 30 and 40 shekels. Sorry, ladies. Inflation has taken over. Back then, it was just 30 to 40 shekels. You would earn per month about one and a half shekels. So Jacob just says, I will pay you more than three times the bride price. I'm going to pay you 126 shekels for your daughter. Laban says, gotcha. It's amazing. He's going to negotiate, this Jacob does, and pay more than three times. Laban said, verse 19, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. You know what word Laban does not say? He does not say yes. He does not say okay. He just says, it is better that I give her to you than anybody else around here. Speaking of which, have you met the shepherds at the well? Those are some lazy losers. He just says it's better for you to get her than somebody else, but he does not say yes. That's an important observation there. Verse 20, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days. Why? Because of the love he had for her. He's thinking, this is it. This is it. When I finally get her, when I finally am married to her, all of my dreams will have come true. <laughs> Those of you who are married, at least for more than 48 hours. Is that true? Yeah, no, Jacob's thinking, this is going to be it. It's going to solve all of my problems. It's going to fill all of my dreams, make my joy complete. He can't wait to say, Rachel, you complete me. He can't wait. He's going to have to wait a little longer. Then verse 21. I will tell you candidly, directly, transparently, Genesis 29, 21 has vexed Hebrew scholars for millennia. They just cannot believe that this verse is in our Bible. It's so not okay. It's just so very not okay. It's so graphic. It's so inappropriate. It's so, it's just not acceptable. And yet Moses is airing all of the laundry so that these Israelites know from whom they come. This Jacob had an ecstatic experience in the wilderness and comes into the land. These Israelites have had an ecstatic experience. They see God part the Red Sea. They see God obliterate Pharaoh's army. How will they respond? Just like their forefather Jacob 
Verse 21 is just not okay. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. Doesn't even name her. Give me my wife that I may go into her. It's a lot more crude than that. For my time is completed. Those of you who are in my hearing, if you are a single man and you approach a young lady's father with this sort of request, you shall expect to get hit in the face with a pipe wrench and then what's left of your head, her mother will chew your face off. This is the most inappropriate, not okay to approach a father of your upcoming bride. Give her, it's go time. Like, so not okay, that's what happens. And Moses pulls no punch to tell us how bad this is. Verse 22, so Laban gathered all the people of the place and made a, not just a feast, a mishtech. A mishtech is a drunken feast. It is a drinking party. He's going to unload all the barrels on this deal. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Now, I can't imagine all the different pieces and parts and layers of execution that have to go into this. First of all, Laban's got to shrewdly plan this deal in a hurry, and he does because he's a deceiver. Rachel has to go along with it. She's got to be at the banquet the whole time until it's time for the consummation, and then she has to be veiled. So she's there, and yet she has to be complicit in the being hidden away. Leah's got to go along with it. Or maybe she wanted to. Maybe she was intentionally involved, or maybe she wasn't. We don't really know. Maybe Rachel was actually in on this deal. We don't really know. There's a whole lot of people that are about to heel grab this Jacob. Verse 24, we get a little interlude, a little parenthesis just to add to the weight and to the drama. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. Oh, no. We're supposed to have that flicker of, you remember back in Genesis 16 when Sarah gives her hand servant Hagar to Abram? Surely, surely we're not going to repeat that mess. Oh, indubitably, we will. Verse 25, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. <laughs> that's high comedy for your Old Testament. You get the idea. There's Jacob. He starts to rub his head. Ooh, that was a lot of wine last night. Ooh. <sighs> Sun comes up. He stretches, and he looks up. Ah, Miss Piggy. Woo. <laughs> and, I mean, that's tough sledding. He jumps up. He runs over to Laban. And Laban's on his second Pop-Tart by now, cool as a cucumber. He's like, hey, Jake, how are you? How was last night? And Jacob has the audacity to say, what is this you have done to me? How could you have And the words harpoon him in the heart. The very thing he did to his brother, the very thing he did to his father has now been done to him. Watch. What have you done to me? Jacob says, verse 25, did I serve you for, for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban responds, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Zing, pow. See, the younger doesn't get to go in front of the older in our country, as is our custom. And the words must have felt like a murder hornet on a sunburn to Jacob because he's usurped, he's heel grabbed, and he's cheated. But Laban's got a better idea. Complete the week of this one, the, the bridal week, the honeymoon week. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. 
I just unloaded the ugly one for three times the price. <laughs> I love it when a plan comes together, says Laban. Here's what we're going to do. Complete the honeymoon week. Ew, ew, ew. And then right after that, you can have Rachel too. Ew, ew, ew. I mean, it's so like not okay. Jacob doesn't even protest. He just goes along with it because he still thinks, if I can just get her, I'll be filled, I'll be full, I'll be complete and happy. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Now, 400 years later, as Moses is receiving the law at Mount Sinai, he includes a very important point, Leviticus 18, 18. You cannot marry another sister while the first sister is still alive. Praise be to God that that's now in there. It wasn't back then during Jacob's day. Moses makes sure and adds it in. He did so. He completed her week, and Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. Okay, so for those of you scoring at home, this dude walked 500 miles, works a month, and then within seven days goes from zero to four. He's got two wives and two concubines. Surely this will all be okay. Verse 30, so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. No, not really. It's he loved Rachel instead of. The technical Hebrew is he loved Rachel and he hated Leah. What a mess. This family full of brokenness, dysfunction, anxiety, and favoritism continues to implode. And yet, through it all, God is faithful. He served Laban for another seven years. This, believe it or not, is God's word. Now, the narrative continues. I'm just going to very quickly summarize. We begin to see this next seven years does not go by as though it was a matter of days like the first seven years did because now he has Rachel and he begins to realize almost immediately that it is not quite so shiny, though she be a shepherdess. She's barren. Where have we seen this before? Sarah was barren. Rebecca was barren. Rachel is barren. But Leah is able to conceive. And in fact, she gives Jacob seven children. Each of the, bride, each of the handmaids, Zilpah and Bilhah, give him two sons. There's even a daughter named Dinah born to Leah. Finally, finally, Rachel is able to conceive and she gives birth to a son named Joseph. That means God will give me another son. So we're prepared for something that will happen later. Yet another son that will be born. And then we get this crazy, crazy narrative where after six more years, so a total of 20 years, Jacob says, you know what? It's been 20 years. It's time to saddle up. We're going home. And he devises this crazy scheme to heel grab the heel grabber. And he takes all the speckled and the spotted and the dark-colored livestock, and he does some crazy things that you just have to read to believe with some stripy wood and the breeding customs of the sheep. It's so bizarre. It's God's word. And they begin to turn and make their way out of Haran back to the promised land. So what can we in the 21st century take away from this long, winding narrative of Jacob, whose God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Let me remind you that God is faithful. Some quick implications to help us to land this plane and all of us have something to walk out of here with. Number one goes like this. God doesn't change our circumstances. He blesses us in the midst of them. You might kind of think, why didn't God just give Jacob like a carriage or a skateboard or, or an Uber or something just to help? Nope, God doesn't do that. More often than not, he does not change our circumstances. He blesses us in the midst of our circumstances. So far in this 
long series in the book of Genesis. We've seen these incredibly long stretches of time where the dysfunction and the depravity of this first family just seems to grow and grow. And look, the more we all age, the more we come to realize and recognize, whether we like it or not, that our family's pretty jacked up too. I know there's a whole bunch of Instagram glamour shots out there and then it's coming. It's coming. You know it's coming. It's the holidays. You're going to get those Christmas letters and they're going to tell you just how amazingly sinless, blameless, holy, and pure and perfect their family is. They're all going to be wearing white shirts with, line, with rhinestone collars. You're going to see it. And you're going to well, I wish my family was like that. It isn't. And neither is theirs. We've all got jacked up families that are full of disease and dysfunction and depravity and divorce and death and all other sorts of ingredients. We all do. We've all got wreckage and nobody's life has gone exactly according to their plan. And if you think that you do have a perfect family, let me just surprise, you're the problem. Everybody else knows that if it wasn't for you, everything would be awesome. But no, we've all got issues. Why is everything so hard? Why doesn't God just fix it all and make it better? Well, God is faithful and he can and he wants to bring blessing and joy and fulfillment in the midst of your messes. He doesn't remove them or clean up those messes. He's actually making the situation better, but he's doing it according to his wisdom and his provision and his purpose for your life, that you would be transformed through these experiences, through these seasons into his image. He enters into the grit, just like Jesus born into a stable, laid in a horse trough in Bethlehem. God is not merely trying to bless your mess. God's trying to raise a family. Second point goes like this. Look out for Laban. Old Uncle Laban. Look out for Uncle Laban. Let me say right off the bat, we do not believe in karma. We do not believe in what goes around and comes around. No, what, for the Christian, what goes around comes to the cross and he receives all the condemnation there is for our sin and error. We don't believe in karma. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. But that does not mean that we aren't disciplined and chastised by God when we forget his faithfulness, and we all do. And we try to take matters into our own hands like Jacob did. We do, however, reap what we sow. That's not karma. That's just a biblical principle of reaping what we sow. We sow the seed and the scheme of our sin, and then we pray for crop failure. I've made all these bad choices. Oh, God, please don't let those crops, but, but he will. We reap what we sow. He is sovereign. He will get our attention. Oftentimes, God will bring an old Uncle Laban into our lives to chastise us and to show us what our sin and scheming feels like when we do it to others. He'll have someone do it to us. Oh, for those of you with an anger problem, I'm not going to make eye contact, but I've talked to your spouse. For those of you with an anger problem with your mate or with your kids, it won't be long before you find yourself working for or being next door neighbors to an old Uncle Laban who is even angrier. And you'll think, it's not fair, 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 fair. Watch for old Uncle Laban. For those of you who like to bend the truth and spread misinformation about people, even during prayer request time, we should pray for her. God bless her. Even if you like to do that in prayer request, I mean, it won't be long before old Uncle Laban will be spreading stuff about you. Did you hear about him? I can't believe it. We should pray for him. Bless his heart. You like to spread misinformation? It won't be long before old Laban's doing it to you. For those of you who like to cut really good deals in business, or finance, at the end, or finance at the expense of somebody else. It won't be long before old Uncle Laban 
He's got a 1992 Volkswagen Cabriolet he's going to sell you for cheap. And you'll think, hey, whoa, why is this thing such a citrus fruit that's yellow? Whoa, watch out for old Uncle Laban. God loves us too much to leave us in the midst of our issues that don't adequately or accurately reflect his image in us, and he will use our methods against us if needed. So look out for old Uncle Laban. Number two, look out for Rachel. Look out for Rachel. Jacob's first side of Rachel, because of hope or fatigue or desperation or whatever it was, it made him fall in love instantly. And he thought that she was the answer to all of his needs and the fulfillment of all of his dreams. Rachel is the dream or the picture that we make for ourselves because we've bought into some idea or image from friends or family or culture or media that that will fulfill me and that will make me happy and bring me joy. If I could just have that, students in school, if I could just be with that person, if I could just be accepted by those people, if I could just be that kind of person, well, it's your first step in worshiping an idol. Something less than the one that made you can never fulfill you or complete you or meet your needs. They are dangerously unqualified for that job. Whatever it is that you think will make you full in the morning, ah, it's Leah! Whatever it is that you think is going to fill you up, make your dreams come true, the sun's going to come up, and it's going to be Leah. Dr. Craig Barnes, again, he puts it this way. Whoever it is that you love, hear this, oh, man. Whoever it is that you love, that person is both Leah and Rachel. Let that hit you for a second and appreciate that it's true. When you think that you have someone all figured out, that means that you think that you are in control of that person which in our depravity is, of course, what we all want. But, listen to what he says, humans are incapable of loving the things we control. Though you try. We are incapable of loving the things we control. Not only that, it won't take long for you to figure out that the 5% of Rachel that you're not crazy about, let's call that part Leah because you're married to both of them, that's where you'll spend all your time and all your frustration and all your effort trying to change it. And so you become the one that transforms Rachel, my God, my God, into Leah. You're doing it. I'm doing it. We do it. When someone they love is trying to improve or change them, it only makes them more insecure, more guilty, more defensive, and therefore even harder to love because we just keep pointing out the thing that is Leah about them. And they know! But you're pointing it out because it's not meeting your needs or what you think you need. And so you put your finger on it and go, this has to get better, this has to get better, and it amplifies. And the 5% that was Leah now begins to be 15% of Leah, and you're killing Rachel anyway. Because you've got this fallen, flawed vision that is not real. It's not because of them, it's because of you, it's because of me. You become the very instrument of dismantling the idol you should never have had in the first place. Beware of Uncle Laban. Beware of Rachel. Look out for Rachel. Number four, look out for Leah. But I don't mean it the same way. With Laban and Rachel, I say, beware, look out for them, but not for Leah. Look out for Leah. I love Leah. I want to be very defensive and protective of Leah. 
I don't mean to be careful of her. I mean to, to, to love her. I love Leah. Bless her heart. My sweet wife is married to Aaliyah. Every night she's thinking, oh, King David, ruddy and handsome. She wakes up, ah, Eric, every morning. God bless her. I mean, can you imagine? I know, I know, I know. So what do you do when you're married to Aaliyah and you thought it was Rachel? See, a lot of Christians and even some secular people make the mistake of trying harder to commit to one another as though it's some heroic force of the will. Good luck. You got 36 hours max. It's not going to work. You'll never do it. You can't do it. Biblical commitment is a gift from God, not an act of strength of our will. It is the surprise with which God wants to bless us, as Barnes has said, even in the mess. But that means we have to lay aside our errant thoughts of what we think is best. I know what's best for me. No, you don't. No, I don't. Staying in love means continuing to fall in love. And you can only do that by continuing to discover one another. When's the last time you said to your spouse, huh, I never knew that about you? It's probably been a long time because you think you've got it all figured out because you want to control that person. I promise with my hand on the written, inspired word of God, there is much you do not yet know about your spouse. And so to quote that great theologian, Steve Perry, from the band Journey, you get the joy of rediscovering him or her. And that's the way you have to stay in love. Not by trying to reform and refashion them into some errant image that they can never be, we're not created to be. Oh, look out for Leah. Just like I mentioned earlier, if we try to improve the Leahs in our lives, perhaps our spouses, into our vision of Rachel, we're actively punishing both people involved in that relationship. We're trying to conform a human being that God created in his image by and for our sovereign God, who said, this is very good. And we're trying to conform it into something that we think is gonna meet our needs and make us happy and fulfilled, and make our lives actually matter. But that strategy will never work. It has never worked. That's why we as a culture have become consumers of disposable relationships. You see it everywhere you go. Oh, I tried to get my Rachel, figured out it was Leah. Done, I'm moving on. Some of you have done that. There's grace for that. Some of you, that's been done too. <laughs> There's grace for that. Now, this Leah in your life is a creation of God that he calls good. Think about that. He calls it good. And no matter how you found one another and how you came together, it was no accident. And our God is in the very specific business, this God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, of taking dead things and making them alive. See also Sarah's womb. See also Rebecca's womb. See also Rachel's womb. See also your relationship when you start trying to turn a Leah into a Rachel. Final point. Look for love in the right place. Johnny Lee, God love him, Spent a lifetime looking for love in all the wrong places. And I'll wager that when he did finally find it at the end of the song, ah, it was Leah. <laughs> that was the second song. A Christian is always learning to live like they're loved. Already, we need not search. One of the primary ways God refines his children is by giving them the gift of commitment to one another. Did you hear that? 
It is a gift that that is what he wants that we simply live into. We don't have to strive. Stop it. Recognize what it actually is. In the next chapter, you're going to find out in chapter 30, Leah was in hell. I have such a soft spot for this woman. She's absolutely in hell. She had no life. She had no identity. She had no worth. She was always being compared to her younger, prettier sister. She had no real presence. Her father had to cheat to give her away because she was out of options. She was in hell. And finally, she has a son. <laughs> you know what she names the first one? Reuben. God sees me. Now my husband will see me. She's trying so very hard to be looked out for. Now he'll see me. And then she has another son. She says, now God hears me, and now my husband will hear me. She names him Simeon. She has a third son. She says, now my husband finally will be attached to me, and she names him Levi. Oh, it's the line of priests. And then she has a fourth son, and she says, now I will praise God. And she pivots. She no longer thinks that Jacob is the one that will fulfill or define her. Now she says, I will praise God. And she names him Judah. And you would never know it. This is the woman, this ugly duckling, through whom the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, will finally come. Because she praises God, stops looking for love in all the wrong places. And this little Aramean ugly girl from Padan Aram she says, I praise Yahweh, the covenant-keeping name of God. Not El Shaddai, not just this random El, the God thing out there. I praise Yahweh. And she begins to live. He is the one, she figures out, is the only one that cannot and will not ever disappoint because rather than waking up and saying, ah, Jacob, she wakes up and says, Yahweh, your mercies are new every morning. And that worship of God produces in her an identity, which, did you know this? It makes her lovely to Jacob. Later on in the book of Genesis, we get this really sad narrative that Jacob and his entire household are traveling from Bethel down south to Bethlehem. And Rachel is pregnant with what will finally be Benjamin, but Rachel dies in childbirth with Benjamin. And Jacob has no choice. He takes Rachel dead and simply buries her in a grave on the side of the road and they continue on their journey. Rachel, Rachel. <laughs> but Leah, at the end of Leah's life, Jacob takes her when she's dead and he takes her all the way back up to Machpelah the tomb of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah. And he lovingly lays Leah in that tomb where he himself will one day be deposited. She began to love the one who loved her fully, who could complete her, who could fulfill her dreams. And because of that, Jacob at some point makes a decision and he begins to look into those weak eyes and he loves them. And because of this gift of commitment, he begins to see, it's not exactly what I would have drawn up, but I mean, she's beautiful. 
by the way, I love Leah. Because I'm Leah. My Jesus looks at these eyes and goes, oh, I'm crazy about you because I say so. I mean, you're a lot to take. But I choose to see you in the image of my Father. Our God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a good Father. You are the Father who is the breather of the stars, as we sang earlier. You hear, you see, and now so do we. So, Father, I pray that you will redirect, you'll reorient, re-architect whatever visions we have that are outside of you. Father, that we would look to you as the source of our love. We would receive the gift of love as a surprising blessing, as commitment as a surprising blessing. We would stop trying harder because as soon as we do, we're done. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning on any of our three floors or watching remotely that doesn't know you, that is still trying to find happiness somehow in a world of disposable relationships, my God, my God, would you not forsake them? Would you move by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus? They would step out of death into life and a life that matters and that means something, that it has worth and glory and beauty. And for the rest of us, Father, who have candidly begun to believe that there's no more love in our relationship. May you rebuke that lie. Would you redeem? Would you rekindle? Would you refresh and restore? May salvation come to this house where there is brokenness. Why not? Why not here? So we pray this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.